My name is Mariah Karina, and you are listening to The Planets Are My Gods. I'm flying solo with the podcast this week as Arakai is down helping out with a retreat in Mexico. And I thought this would be a good time to take a little step back and do a very brief introduction to evolutionary astrology. Me and Arakai have studied all different kinds of astrology over the years, but the one that we always come back to and that informs the core architecture of our astrological orientation is evolutionary astrology. So evolutionary astrology originally came from Jeffrey Wolfgreen, and the myth and the legend is that it was actually taught to him by Sri Ukteswar in a dream. Sri Ukteswar is Yogananda's teacher. And so it brings in some of the principles of Vedic astrology and the Hindu cosmology while using traditional Western astrological placements. There's always this debate that comes up every few years of like, hey, what's true, Vedic astrology or Western astrology? I'm this sign in Vedic. And that's because Vedic uses the sidereal system, which tracks the zodiac signs based on the physical position of the constellations in the sky. Whereas... Western astrology uses the tropical zodiac. And so it's using the equinoxes as its orientation point for the zodiac. So the spring equinox always coincides with the onset of Aries season. That's why tropical or Western astrology is always very consistent, whereas Vedic or sidereal astrology is always slightly shifting based on the axis and the tilt of the planet in what is known as a procession. All that being said, one of the main insights that came to Jeffrey Wolf Green that became the founding point of Vedic astrology is the introduction of Pluto as the core evolutionary intention of the soul. So in evolutionary astrology, the idea is that we came from somewhere and we're going from somewhere. Because it comes from the Hindu world, it believes in reincarnation and past lives. And even in that system, it's thought that there's a little bit of soul stuff. There's a little bit of unique ether that sort of arises out of a body as it's dying and moves into the bardo and then is reborn or reincarnates in a new form. And the idea is that this little bit of something that lasts after the body dies and that has enough soul force in it to want to reincarnate again is this tightly wound bundle of desire, of karma, and also of dharma. And so that desire is kind of this pulsing, powerful force through the universe. It's so powerful that the unrealized desires of a previous string or thread of lifetimes has enough power to it to want to be born again. That desire itself is this motor that moves physical beings through time and space and that you can see the precise signature of the desires that this soul came in with in its Pluto placement. And what's so interesting about this is that Pluto is a generational signature. Pluto spends anywhere from 12 to 31 years 
to move through each sign. And so the idea is that all of the souls that are in resonance with the desires of that sign are going to be drawn to this harmonic, cymatic chamber of the universe, right? The idea is that we incarnate in these precise points where the entire concert of our family situation, our cultural context, our geographical ecosystem, and our solar environment are in perfect harmony with the vibration that that soul is bringing in at that moment. So I was born in Pluto and Scorpio generation. That means that not only what my soul knew, but the desires, the pregnant void that my soul wanted to experience was also harmonically resonant with all that is contained within the swath of consciousness that is Scorpio. And so it saw the resonant portal of that moment of the Scorpio generation as a match for it that enabled my soul to incarnate at that exact moment. And because it spends so long in each signs, it means that I came into being in this lifetime at the same moment that all of these other souls that were also resonating with Scorpio frequencies, Scorpio karma, Scorpio memory, Scorpio desires were also born. And then what becomes very important is what house the Pluto falls in, in a particular chart. So for me, the Scorpio in Pluto in the fifth house means that it's all these fifth house themes that I am anchored in. It's through the lens or through the materiality of the fifth house that all these Scorpio desires want to be fertilized, right? That's like where the Scorpio platonic seed was planted is in the territory of the fifth house. So all the Leo things of creativity, of being seen, pleasure, play, um, the heart, and then also all those uh, karmas and traumas and dramas associated with also fifth house themes is the complex environment in which these desires exist and will grow through. And it also means that it's this fifth house material that is my particular part of like the medicine wheel of Pluto and Scorpio that I am working through. So where the fit, where the Pluto exists in terms of the house, it's almost like that part of the wholeness or that aspect of the pattern or of the fractal of the Scorpionic Plutonic desires that each individual is given a part to play in terms of living through the desires of their particular generation and of purifying and elevating, evolving the consciousness that those desires exist within. So let's take a moment to look at desires themselves. It was the great realization of the Buddha that desires lead to suffering, which I feel like if we look in our individual lives, we can clearly see. However, we can also directly experience the fact that desires lead to momentary ecstasies, to peak experiences, that 
If we zoom out, desires exist in a more complex system of both our highest highs and our lowest lows, of our greatest cravings and our aversion. That desire themselves contain this huge amount of dynamism, that they contain so much of the things that are the most traumatic, that they contain the things that we imagine will be the healing or that we experience being the counterpoint to all of that trauma. And so it's not about having an immediate judgment about desire itself as good or bad or individual desires are good or bad. And I don't even want to get caught up in the debate about whether desires are worth seeking or not. Instead, I want to step away from this image of desire as either something we get or we don't get and see it instead as this evolutionary force. And one of the ways that this is shown or reflected in evolutionary astrology that is also of great importance to that paradigm is the north and south node of the moon. This again borrows a lot from Vedic astrology and essentially looks to the south node of the moon as your karma that if you're trying to understand how this soul has gone about attempting to actualize its desires in previous lifetimes, you can see the different personality vehicles and identity structures, the habitual ways in which it has attempted to meet and actualize its desires by the signature encapsulated by the south node of the moon. So let's say, for example, that south node of the moon is in Sagittarius. That means all the qualities of Sagittarius will be all the strategies that the soul has employed in order to meet its desires, right? Very different than if you were going to go about it in a Libran way or an Aquarian way. And also with the house, right? Let's say that Sag is in the first house, then it might be trying to, you know, go about finding itself through trial and error, understanding self-identities, maybe having to shed a lot of different emotional self-identities in order to actualize its quest for deep meaning or to get back to what's natural to it. I'm just spitballing here. But you can sort of see that whatever it is that has been reflected in those past life is also going to appear again in this life, even if you don't believe in past lives, normally whatever is in that karmic inheritance is going to be echoed again in the early childhood conditioning, in the family of origin, in the cultural context that the soul finds itself in, in this life. And then not only in the context, but also in the habits and patterns that occur to that child, to that soul to employ is also going to be reflected in the early patterning. So you're going to be able to see it. And the idea is that we get so addicted to those identities we create. We get so addicted to those habits. They create grooves in our being that are so hard to break out of. It's almost like a record player, like the needle in the record player. We almost can't even envision beyond that south node 
beyond that habituated way of doing things that in order to be able to actualize our dharma and in terms of what the soul is really calling for us to do in order to really nourish and feed those Pluto's desires is found at the absolute 180 degrees opposite end of the circle, the north node of the moon, which is why that's called our dharma point or um, the head of the dragon, whereas the south node is the tail. It's almost like this magnetic north that's calling us. So anytime we find ourselves getting too wrapped up in our south node, too employing that those mindsets and actions, it's time to look instead to our north node, saying, what would you know Gemini do? What would the seventh house do in this situation? And Obviously, it's not like we need to abandon all of our south node and only go towards our north node because in fact, in all of that karmic repetition, in those ways of doing things, in our early childhood conditioning, we've actually had so much time and experience to really develop and refine gifts. But instead, it's about sifting out the gifts from some of just the traumatic reenactment or the loops that we're stuck in and integrating those gifts with this new aspect of what we're learning that's embodied or represented by the North Node of the Moon. And in this way, we can kind of use these bookends, these inflection points of evolutionary astrology to tell a story of the soul right? That we come in with all this familiarity and knowledge of our South Node, but that we're working towards being able to employ the gifts, perspectives, and abilities of our North Node in integration with our South Node in order to be able to actualize our Pluto. And what gets really dangerous about having a framework like this, or I'll first say what I feel is really positive about this is that our minds work in narrative, our minds work in story, and that having this cognitive architecture, I found it can really help me and I've seen it help my friends and the people I work with have a reminder for when we lose consciousness, when we lose awareness to be like, oh, right, This is the living pulse of my desires that move through me. There's something about our Pluto points that's sort of like a wellspring. It has a kind of deep charge that when we get too far away from, when we lose ourselves, when we forget what's motivating us, what truly gives us life, what animates our life force, we can return to the Pluto and be like, oh, right, you. And there's almost this moment of recognition that's like, ah, yes, you've been with me my whole life. I've been drawn to you my whole life. I've been summoning you again and again, and here you are, right? It's like, that touchstone deep inside of the soul that is that reflective mirror that reminds us who we are and what fills us, what gives us an ability to navigate through time and space in these bodies. 
And if anything, I believe that that's what desire is. It is actually a motor for navigating through time and space. And the more conscious we are, the more reminders we have of what our core desires are, the easier it is to understand what's particularly our ship to navigate and then to navigate with a little bit more awareness. And then understanding, oh, right, when I get stuck in these patterns, I start to feel like I'm in my trauma. I start to feel desperate and confused and angry and sad and reminding ourselves, oh, right, I'm in a growth journey. There's another way to do things that's so far out of my framework of thinking that I often forget it, but it lives, it's there. And ah, what is that? And whatever it is that my North Node is in by sign and house has keys and clues for what that is. And hmm, I can break open this hard cage I feel that I've been in, encountering the same patterns within and without, internally and externally, over and over again. And I can think, what would a different way be? And activate my imagination, activate this ability to think from a different point of view about it. And feel like I've come from somewhere and I'm going from somewhere. I'm moving and there's a story and I'm involved in something. And I just have found that to be really nourishing and a really good reminder for when we find ourselves in those moments, when we are calling out for help and support and be witnessed and be mirrored. However, the potential negative of having this sort of framework is that it can fall a little bit into the more shadow aspect about a hero's journey, where it can become too fixated on, have I attained these desires or not? right? Have I actualized my Pluto or not? And then it can become another way of instead of the story giving us an opportunity to look within, to find ourselves within, to reconnect to that deep soul source within, and then from the inside out, reorient through our lives, it can become another one of those things where we take an observational third-party point of view, looking at ourselves through an objectified lens of whether we've done it or not done it, and just make us really susceptible to inner criticism. And so instead of focusing on the desires ourselves, themselves, and I know you can look at desires as material things, like, oh, I want um, a partner and a new house and to move, which is totally valid to want those things. You can also see one layer deeper of desire is, ah, I want a state of being that I imagine would come from those things, right? Safe, happy, secure, content, embodied, feeling purposeful. You can say, "Mm, I want even just the, the consciousness itself that is the embodied present moment of those things, right? I think people try and explore a lot with playing with different densities of desire. Um, But I want to do an even deeper forward ground shift where it's not about the desires themselves at all, but it's about the system and the structures of desires. And it's about how we engage with them. Because if desires contain all of our karma, trauma, drama, our deepest cravings and aversion, if desires really are kind of this thing that 
navigate us through life, right? I like this. I don't like this. I want this. I don't want this. I want this, but I feel conflicted about this. I don't want this. And yet I feel like I should, and I feel guilt and shame about it, right? There's like desires that move us through life and then all the complexity we add to our desires. And so instead of the desires themselves, if you can do this sort of like phase that into the background and bring forward how we engage with them, you can see that this craving and aversion, this emotional reactivity, this ability to even be able to discern what a desire is telling us, what we really want, what is our voice versus what are maybe internalized belief systems that are obscuring our ability to see things. Um, all of the that world around the desire is that sort of deep, rich material that has the potential to evolve our consciousness, right? Because the evolution occurs not markedly by the attainment or loss of the desires, material, energetic, or otherwise, but by how we are evolutionary engaging the play, the Leela that surrounds them. And so now that we have this framework, right, that there is this desire that's almost like a gravitational center that then organizes our known patterns with the fact that the North Node is already latent within our being. It's already this potential that is existing with us, wanting to be born, wanting to be explored and enacted. Then the question becomes, how is this soul using the tool of the chart of the sun, moon, rising, Mercury, Venus, Mars, etc., in order to support this evolutionary process. And I think sometimes we can see up oh, transits are coming. Oh dear, like I'm being hit by Pluto again. And that's all really real. However, these planets. I think we can see them sometimes, especially the ones that have been more traditionally malefic, as kind of the monsters that are coming out, the trolls under the bridge that are blocking the the attainment of the desires or are the you know foes that the hero us on the journey needs to conquer in order to get what we want or get to the finish line. But if you see every single part of the chart is part of this exquisite divine orchestration that's all supporting the transmutation of this karma, the shifting of these patterns, the birth of something new, then you can also see how every single one of these planets are one just showing the conditions, illuminating different nuanced aspects of the little microcosm we are and are also potential allies. Like if you feel like Saturn keeps getting in the way of your Venus, I think it's fair to stand in the position of the Venus and to look towards your Saturn and to think, wow, what can I ask of Saturn about how Saturn can actually support me. What would I beg of Saturn if I, Venus, were going on a quest to the temple of Saturn to lay an offering on that altar? What would I be 
requesting or praying for. And the same, if I were Saturn and Venus was my beloved, Venus was my child, Venus was someone who I just wished to see flourish, then what do I have to offer them by house and sign and planetary attributes? And what could I give them? You know, all of these are relationships in this ecosystem that we can embody and tend to and play with and ask about. And so much of what I have loved about astrology and what brings me back to it again and again is that it makes me feel connected to something so much greater than myself, that we are embedded in this tapestry of absolute consciousness, that it's this animism at the highest level. It is a song of a living universe. It is part of a symphony that these archetypes are living forces, that these things that we call the zodiac signs are huge areas of consciousness that are living through us. And so just knowing what the moon is doing, how the moon is influencing the fluids in our body, that it's pulling the tides and the rhythms, that the same exact thing is happening with Mercury and Venus and Mars and Saturn. And all of this is contributing to what is living through us at any given time just makes me feel so unbelievably ecstatic. And when I put it in the context of me as a soul in this resonant moment of incarnation with these other souls that are all working on different themes, it's almost like we are living this archetype and that we are evolving this archetype through ourselves. And it almost makes me feel that much more in tune with the dance of our solar system and this feeling that maybe Pluto in its orbit, it's very unusual, asymmetrical orbit out there on the furthest edges of our solar system is skirting the dance almost like a little antenna or a little um, receptor for different waves of consciousness that are outside our solar system, that it's tuning into the radio station of different stars and picking up different information about the consciousness out there and gravitationally pulling it into our solar system in a way that is then transmitting to us new information that is helping us to enrich and evolve and more deeply, you know, pattern the patterns of the archetypes we already have, that it's bringing in new star intelligence and new star insights for us to live and to grow as it spirals through the different signs that the evolution of these different archetypes also spiral through not only the humans that are being incarnated, but the plants, the animals, the elementals, and the invisible beings as well. That we are all living the conscious embodiment of this astrological and astronomical dance. And that the evolution of our individual content 
consciousness is part of this larger universal trajectory. And that just as desires are the place of suffering, that they're the place of agony as well as the place of ecstasy, that there is an opportunity in getting clear of what our desires, of sort of sifting through all of the collective messages that exist there to be able to listen to that still quiet voice coming from the depths of our souls, <laughs> she says as a Pluto and Scorpio, allows us to be clear about what's trying to happen through us in a way that encourages and enables us to be responsible for the peace of this larger, greater, macrocosmic fractal that we're a part of by tending to our own ability to be in tune with ourselves, to listen to ourselves, and to act accordingly. In process work, they have this idea of high and low dreams. The high dreams are your greatest hopes for how anything is going to go. Your life, a relationship, a job, a move, a birthday party, a trip to the farmer's market. And then there's your low dreams, which is your worst fears, which often contains a lot of trauma material and a lot of trauma states that we get into. And in a way, it reminds me of craving and aversion or of the agony and ecstasy that surrounds a lot of our relationship to desire, that we want it so much and that we do everything we can to get it and to make it happen. And then in doing that, we get a bunch of things that are not that, that feel horrible and awful and confirm all of these horrendous beliefs and make us feel separate and disconnected and utterly heartbroken. And that we get these brief glimpses of moments where we are able to get our desires or even just brief glimpses of moments where we feel like we have the potential to have our desires. And sometimes that's enough to completely um, put up with a bunch of bullshit or buy into conditional reality or make a bunch of compromises or even just have enough energy to go for another run around the merry-go-round, you know? Like, in a way, just calling it high and low dream is almost giving these very sweet, almost, I think, like childlike or cartoonish names for these huge emotional states that we get in that characterize so much of the human experience. And yet, in process work, they say a big part of what we're doing is we're learning how to embody the feeling state inside of our high dream. So let's say you have a set of desires, but a lot of kind of the state of being that you're looking for inside of those desires can be grouped together, that you might only have three core states that you're trying to make happen in your whole incarnation, and that so much of the activity of your life is gravitationally organized around the attainment of these three states and maybe the avoidance of three states that just feel like an absolute hell realm for you. And 
maybe if you look at where your Pluto placement is, you can see that these might be two sides of the potential of the archetypal signature of that Pluto placement. And that maybe some of the things that feel more in your high dream are reflected in that North node. And maybe some of the things that feel in your low dream are reflected in that South node. And so knowing this about yourself might give you a little bit of an opportunity to anchor some awareness, again, coming up to what I believe would be um, useful ways to activate that kind of story or narrative understanding is to be able to have a little bit of awareness of like, ah, I'm in my low dream or ah, I'm in my high dream. And then maybe also adding this other element is we can say, in addition to the fact that I'm learning how to embody this as a state, as well as maybe, you know, attain these material things, And in addition to saying like, ah, I'm evolving my consciousness by virtue of how I interact with these desires, I can also say that maybe this is the force of consciousness moving through me. The same way that the planets are moving through me. The same way that the living archetypal energies move through me. And that the more aware I am of this, the better I can play. And maybe the better I can play, the more me and the whole cosmos get to sing and dance together. 